Welcome to the Thoughtful Gamer Podcast, episode number 54. Today we're going to be talking about the games of Vitalis Serda. As always, my name is Mark, and here with me is Orion. Hello. And this has got to be one of our favorite designers. So I'm very excited about this podcast. Yeah, dubbed the Lacerda Day, the hour of follow actions is upon us. <laughs> <laughs> yes, but before we get into it, as always, this podcast is brought to you by our patrons at patreon.com slash the thoughtful gamer. Uh, we b- very briefly hit our first goal, so we'll be doing a giveaway probably tomorrow as I say this, but then we drop back down again, so we're we're on the precipice of that first goal where we do quarterly giveaways. Uh, so if you enjoy the podcast, uh, go to patreon.com slash the thoughtful gamer and you can help support us, which is always greatly appreciated, uh, which will allow you to watch these podcasts live. So you can get uh, all the information before it actually gets edited and posted. Sometimes it's like two days before. Sometimes it's like two weeks before. It depends on when we can actually schedule the podcasting. But without further ado, let's talk about Vitala Serda, a board game designer who started with Age of Steam maps. So his first published design, according to VGG, is an Age of Steam map. So obviously he's a fan of that game. And then only a couple years later, comes out with Vino. So he kind of dives right into it. I know when we did one of these designer deep dives before a little while ago with uh, Vlada Kavadal. Our uh, other favorite designer. (laughs) Our other, yeah, one of our other major favorite designers. He kind of eased into it, so you, we know that he started with computer games, a lot of early computer games, and then you can see some of his very early games, you know, like one of them was just kind of like taking talisman and doing something a bit different with it, um, or taking kind of basic mechanisms before he comes out with Through the Ages, which I think was his first big game that kind of put his name on the map. Lacerda, there's like no buildup. He releases Venus right away, and that's a really well-received game, and rightfully so. I guess I should explain what we're going to be doing is going through all six of his games that have been released in chronological order. Uh, it's a it's a much easier to handle load than like the eighteen games of Lada, <laughs> and we've played all of them, all these all six of these games. So. That will be nice. So let's start with Venus. I just re- released my review of it. Uh, we have the deluxe edition, which came out uh, two or three years ago, but it, it has both the original rules with better art and components and the a, a new updated version that we have not played. Uh, we've stuck with the original rules because they're more hardcore, apparently. Uh, and that's how we do things. <laughs> yeah, we're all about making things hard on ourselves. <laughs> I mean, mostly it's that... I've never seen anyone prefer the updated rules. Yeah. They're, they make the game a bit simpler, I believe, uh, or at least easier and more gentle. And uh, I think while it is a game where you can lose kind of early on, it's not it's not that brutal. Like you're not you're probably not going to win your first time playing unless you're also with a bunch of other new players, but it's not like it's not like you can completely go off course and then have nothing to do the rest of the game you're just not going to be quite as efficient so i don't think it needs a gentler mode necessarily no um it feels like as long as you do any of the things you'll at least score 50 points or something and once you played it a second or third or fourth time and start finding efficiencies that's when you can 
score maybe double that. <laughs> yeah. The last time I played this, I felt like I had as close to a perfect game of Is as I could with my current knowledge of the game. And what I score, like 130-ish? I can't remember. Was it that high? I thought it was decently above 100. I don't remember. Anyways. I thought I won with like just barely over 100. And the previous game you won, what, or were you thinking about the previous game? Maybe we've we played this twice with with Rand on Lacerda Day. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And this, the, I think the first of those two plays, one of those, one of remember, those plays, I remember I that, felt that really good about play. It. You felt really good. Yeah. The second play, we both. Oh tried yeah, to you do came the from behind and won. Yeah. Yeah, it's the first one I'm thinking. The of. first one, yeah, yeah. Because the second one, we both went for the island expansion, and you used it, and I just left a bunch of barrels <laughs> sitting there, but somehow managed to win. Yeah, uh, I think. Maybe, I, well, yeah. I ran out of barrels. Well, so did I. <laughs> True, but I guess you used the barrels you had better. I don't know. I don't know. I forget I, what the well, difference was. The difference was that I won the wine, all three of the wine fairs by like That's two wine points yeah. each time. Yeah, that was it. So uh, for those who haven't played Venus, you don't have really any clue what we're talking about. The, the kind of main theme that I talked about in my review is that I thought it was an interesting game when I first played it, and now I've grown to really appreciate it. And I think it's because I realized that at its heart, it has the soul of a very small game. It's 12 short actions. <laughs> it's just 12 actions. But it has... I, I like to think of games a lot in terms of their narrative arc. And there are some games that have very novel-esque... Not, not novel-like, as the cat comes in, trying to contribute to the podcast... Some games have this kind of very clear, distinct narrative arc where, you know, like Twilight Imperium, you build up and then you try to expand and then there's maybe a bit of skirmishes, but it all will kind of come to a head in a few key battles over over key aspects of the map. Um, and that feels like a big story. Other games, you're just trying to think of like tiny towns right from from the very beginning you're trying to score points you you see the end game in mind you're planning for the end game you're like okay i need to build i i I need to not build a building in the center because that will hamper my ability to pivot into different things and, and build different types of buildings towards the end so everything's kind of compacted into okay i'm doing things i need to do to score points the end there's not I invest resources to build up to get yeah. myself in positions and do diplomatic things. And, you know, the, that's to me what I mean with Venus, that it has the soul of a small game is that from the very beginning, literally the, like before even play, like your selection of what you want your first vineyard to be can impact the strategy for your whole game. Like, okay, I'm going to try to pursue this thing. And then from the very beginning, you can make active steps uh, not to build up to a position where you can take that strategy, but you're like, okay, I'm doing this because I need I need to be able to do this thing by the mid-game, which is going to be like five turns from now. Like, it all feels very compact and small that you're doing things at the beginning that directly are about the end-game state. Yeah, like Tiny Towns, you have one or two strategic ideas in that I want to build this big monument or I want to build one of those. And otherwise it's pretty much all tactical. How do I fit this cube? <laughs> mm-hmm. Venus, 
I guess, yeah, I kind of see what you're saying. I usually go into a game with one or two strategy things of, I want to go big banking, or I want to buy a bunch of vineyards or something, and then I just try to find the most efficient way of doing that. And most turns are, sometimes I'll have like three turns in a row that where I know I need to do this, then this, then this, but otherwise it's, I have a list of about five things I need to do over the next five or six turns, and it's just trying to sequence them efficiently. Yeah. But when in a game of Venus, when you're talking about five or six turns, that's literally half the game. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Which just feels so much different from usually a complex game where you kind of take things. I guess what I'm trying to say is that in other complicated Euro games, I tend to think in terms of like stages of the game. Of like, I want to do this thing well, so I set myself up well for the next stage of the game. Even even thinking about a, a very similar game in, in its theme, uh, Viticulture, where you spend, you're like, okay, the beginning of the game, I want to do these things that will help I want to build my in the beginning of the game. I build I one or two build buildings, up my get, my, get my grapes planted, yeah. build my cottage or whatever, and so that I can start producing wine. In Venus, you do the same things, but you're simultaneously thinking about, okay, I want to be able to do these things so that, for instance, uh, I can, in three or four turns, sell to get money or points with this particular vineyard. Like, it just feels like much more direct. Like, you're, you're both investing in upgrading and cashing in for points from almost the very beginning of the game. I don't think I usually go for points until, like, the second half. Oh, man. I'm thinking about it from the very beginning. Or, or at least thinking the f- about, the, the for instance... The first couple turns for me are usually trying to buy more vineyards, get a few upgrades, figure out what I'm going to send to the wine fair, and how to get any amount of money. Those are, like, the first four actions of Venus. Yeah, I mean, it, it depends a lot on the turn order because that's kind of like the standard way of going about things is, you know, building up, trying to do well in the wine fair. But, you know, if you're well, it's fourth not, in you, turn you order, you don't even have to try to win. Expensive. It's not like you have to win the wine fair. Sure. But you want to think about what you're sending because that lets you get barrels up top for the mat, uh, magistrate actions or whatever they're called. I forget what they're called. The, the experts, I guess. Yeah. No, the, well, the experts are the, the cards. Those... Aren't they the same icons though? I forget. No, the wine experts are the like the four types of cards. Oh right, in the yeah, yeah. I don't remember what those other people are called. Anyways, it's a deliciously complex puzzle, and even though it's also kind of limited with like twelve actions, and you know, at any given point, like yeah, there are like eight other eight actions you can select from because you're, you're on a grid of nine different actions. But a few of them are going to kind of be eliminated because you can't afford it or it's just not going to be efficient or you're not prepared for it. Like, there's going, there's going to only be a couple of different viable actions in each given action, but the implications of each one are, are so huge. And as we'll talk about with many of the games... Uh, of of Lacerda's games, there are a lot of extra things you can do. And Bonus like, actions or taking an action can lead into like four or, other yeah. actions. Yeah, um, that are sometimes as impactful as the main action. It's not like just a little minor thing you can do. Mm-hmm. I think particularly in this one and in Lisboa, that's the case. At the yeah. gallerist, you can take a main action 
as a bonus action, but you have to pay for it. Otherwise, it's something relatively minor. Yeah. But I, I love Venus. I think right now it's my favorite, but I haven't played Lisboa in a while, which was my previous favorite. So it might be a situation where my favorite Lacerda is just the one I played most recently. I like how... Unless that one is Escape Plan. I like how... I, I think I asked you like maybe two or three months ago how, what you thought about Lacerda games. And you're like... Venus is definitely on the bottom, and then this one, and <laughs> then probably Lisboa and Gallerster at the top. And then, then we've played it twice in the past six weeks or something. Yeah. Maybe twice. Was it twice in May or something? Something like that. Um, and now it's like, now you're gushing about it and love it so much. I don't know. Something clicked. Like something clicked in the game, and I saw it in a new way, and I kind of, I kind of came into the rhythm of the game it's like okay i kind of understand what he's going for because again it doesn't it it looks like viticulture it has the same theme as viticulture but it doesn't play like viticulture very much at all it has a lot of similar aspects but there's some kind of inherent feeling to it that feels closer to a small game like tiny towns or roll for the galaxy or something like that yeah I get that, and yet there's definitely a lot of complexity. Oh, sure. Um, and there's a lot of thought, and, to, and, and playing well requires a lot of planning ahead and sequencing your actions and doing what other people aren't doing, maybe to a lesser degree, but I think those yeah, are all... there's a little bit of that, um, yeah. All those factors are in there. Mm-hmm. And there's just there's lots of little things that's like... Especially when you think about this being his first published design, it's like clearly he's a fan of heavy Euro games and he's just like, I'm just going to make the ultimate heavy Euro game and have all the heavy Euro things. Like the fact that you can always divest, but you have to take an action to reinvest or to withdraw money from the bank. Like that's just needlessly cruel, but it's a Euro game thing. And so the first time player might be like, really? I have to take one of my 12 actions just to like, put money in the bank or take away out money from the bank yeah but then you think about it you're like okay it's just a another layer of complication that makes your decisions more difficult which is kind of the whole heart and soul of the heavy euro game yeah is complex interesting decision making with a lot of different factors um so i can totally see people not liking lacerda games and particularly not liking venos because I think Venus and Lisboa kind of have that the most of his games that like a whole bunch of different factors weighing in on every decision, but it is a style of game that I enjoy. And I think he does it pretty much about the best of anyone. Yeah. I do think Venus has a buildup and then a payoff, but those phases kind of blend together. And I think the biggest reason that you can still go for that strategy is because production is free. Production just happens at the end of every space. I mean, like because I like think okay. in one, but like one of the last if, two if games, like I was selling wine to get points by like the third action or something, the fourth action maybe. Like okay, still early in the game. Like you can you can start cashing in quite soon. I don't know. I've always kind of played it that way um sure i haven't gone for a super greedy strategy of just just get points anywhere you can as soon as possible um because it, it's always seemed to me that the 
the payoff of investing for a couple turns is more than the alternate, but who knows? Well, in my case, in the last game I played, I was fourth in the turn order to start. Mm-hmm. So everything that I would typically want to do, like investing in my winery or whatever, was more expensive than usual. And, you know, you get compensated with a bit of extra starting money. But then I realized, you know, no one, if I can go on the grab a winery, another vineyard spot, which is one extra in the first two turns, um, I can start going wide effectively with my wine and have just a quantity of production Mm -hmm. faster than everyone else. And then leverage that into trying to get barrels out really quickly, which bit me a bit because I really needed one or two more barrels than I actually have in the supply. Mm-hmm. The barrels, for those who haven't played it, is this, you can use them for three or four different things, or two or three different things, and you only have like eight of them. And once they're gone, they're gone. You can't really, it's hard to get them back. You can get them back in very limited situations, but um, yeah, basically, I can, wanted, yeah. my goal was to go really wide with my wine and just make sure I spend all my barrels because those are main ways to get points. Mm-hmm. And it was just a completely different strategy than before, and it felt a lot different than kind of the standard build up, get good quality wines, and then utilize those effectively. Yeah. With that said, moving on to CO2, which is his next game. We, I never played, again, like Venus, I never played the initial printing of it, but I have played the newer revised edition i'm not quite sure what the changes were i think we played the version we played i think was either the same or very close to the original one and the new edition added a fully cooperative mode which we did not play but co2 was interesting if again venus feels very mature for a first design co2 i think is was very good but it felt more like a first time design everything was a bit more straightforward and there was less Tan, there were fewer tangential bits and considerations to think of, um, but a, but a very interesting game because it's it's like a shared disincentives game where everyone's trying to build up these different stages of power plants that you can piggyback on. So someone could build the initial stage. I forget what, there's like three levels to building You can it. basically propose it, I think. There's the proposal, yeah. then the infrastructure, then the actual plant itself. Yeah, so I could propose something and get some kind of benefit from that, but then Orion could take that proposal and actually uh, build the infrastructure up, and then another person could actually finish the plant. And there are different types of rewards for each of them. Some of them... And there's different resources required for each of them. Yeah. Uh, actually, completing one gives you the greatest amount of resources, or the greatest bonus, uh, greatest number of points, Com- but it costs the most resources. Completing them is the main way you'll get victory points. Yeah, and starting proposals is felt fairly lucrative. The middle stage, I remember not being quite as lucrative, so it, it tended to get into this situation where you have a lot of partially completed projects. But the problem is, if you don't actually complete the power plants, then the temperature of the Earth rises, and if it hits a certain threshold, everyone loses. Uh, which is the kind of semi-cooperative thing that I love. I think that kind of dynamic adds a lot to games, and CO2 did it quite well. Yeah, there's kind of one universal, like, global stick that beats everyone, and then there's the un- the other crisis one that 
hits anyone that doesn't hit that condition. So generally, every it's played over five decades. Each decade is a round, and you have like three actions in each round, I think, um, in each decade. Mm-hmm. And every every new decade, you come out all the each of the six continents builds a new power plant if there isn't already one there, and it will produce a some sort of coal power plant or a fossil fuel power plant that adds CO2 <laughs> as the namesake to the atmosphere. And if the, and that adds a certain um, PPM of CO2, and if that hits a certain threshold, everyone loses. So you're incentivized to spread out your power plants throughout the different regions to prevent and eventually replace those dirty power plants um, to bring down or ma- manage the, the CO2 levels, but you also start hitting these crises where if you haven't contributed either infrastructure or a power plant or the final step of a power plant in a continent, you get punished severely (laughs) in that continent. So that's where it starts pushing you. It it, It pushes everyone to invest in the same continents, but at the same time, you all have to kind of spread out and hit every continent. Um, And, as you keep building in a given continent, the resources there kind of dry up. So you want to spread out so that you have access to those, um, the purple discs, the mm-hmm. carbon credits or whatever they are Yeah, yeah. Um, from other continents. So I really like that tension. I really like the kind of tempo jostling of if I build this infrastructure, it lets you build the power plant, but maybe you don't have the resources to finish it. Or maybe you don't have the tech to do this, so I can do this freely, but I really need the resources to do that other thing. So I don't know. There's there's a lot of consideration there and a, a lot of a lot of tempo decisions, I thought. Yeah, it, it was a really nice blend of kind of personal incentives and then group incentives where you genuinely, genuinely had to struggle over what to do because you didn't want to give up things for the sake of the group, but you know you do have to avoid the loss condition, and you're trying to, like you said, gain tempo on other people. It was a really interesting look, and I, I'd like to play it more if only to look at the game as a reflection of some kind of political viewpoint, right, in how this kind of thing works out in the real world. I find it interesting that nuclear isn't represented at all in the game. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I didn't... Maybe because it would yeah. just break it, because it's relatively inexpensive and clean. In in most ways you would consider clean energy, there's, there's waste disposal, but it doesn't emit fossil fuel emissions. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah, the the political I, discussion kind of created by this game or as a background to this game would be... Yeah, it'd be interesting to know kind of I guess I guess you could say this says something about his views probably. <laughs> yeah, but I I'm curious how much of it is his political perspective on energy creation versus trying to just make a balanced game in an engaging game because yeah. you know every game has some sort of tension along those lines in the creation process of trying to do something and say something and, and, and fulfill some kind of ideal by the, the part of the designer. Even on fairly frivolous games, they still have ideas of what they want the game to accomplish 
in terms of, you know, the player's experience versus the kind of things that we would consider a good game getting in the way of that. And how do you compromise with that? You know, with, with Euro games and with German style games, typically, you know, that's scale tends towards the, the compromise of like, okay, we want to make a balanced game that's, that's accessible. Um, abstract whereas, mechanisms. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Abstract things out. Whereas if you look at like, you know, war games, they'll have rules in there that are just flavor. <laughs> like they don't, yeah. they make the game more complicated. They don't actually change the gameplay much or at all. It's just historical flavor because they're trying to provide that kind of experience. Right. So there's always that balancing. It's fun to see where different games go in that conflict in the design stage. Like that one 18xx, which has gravity G trains, which can only run downhill and you have to roll every time they run to see if they crash uh, or if they make it or something. I mean, that's that's flavor that impacts gameplay a lot, right? That's yeah. I'm thinking of, I can't remember, I can't remember it, but like, oh, like, you know, the, um, the Hex Encounter game we have, Blood in the Fog. Yeah. Right. Like all the, there's like some units and it's like, there's a whole set of rules for this unit. And it's like, oh, there's literally one shit. That's that unit. And it's like, well, oh, they were yeah. there in the battle. But right. like, nah. you know, if Reiner Knizia made that game, he'd be like, nope, get rid of it. <laughs> you know, simplify, make it, make it more elegant, uh, make, it, make it more approachable. Anyways, uh, CO2 had a very positive first impression. I would like to play it again. I think probably the most approachable Lacerda game. It's certainly one of the more approachable ones. It felt a lot more straightforward to me than This is like one that I legitimately think looks beautiful. Yeah, and the new edition the re- is the reprinting stunning. especially is stunning. I mean, I guess we should mention this like almost all of his games have been given have been either released with or given this this really high quality printing by Eagle Griffith um or Eagle Griffin. Eagle Griffin, I think. Yeah. CO2 was not Eagle Griffin, but it was still Ian O'Toole artwork, I believe, which is the artist that he's worked with. The only one that hasn't had that printing of it is the next one we'll be talking about, Kanban, although it will have an, a deluxe version coming out in the next couple of years. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, they're, they're beautiful. I It's hard to say which one I find the most beautiful. CO2 See, I, looks really good. I don't think these games are beautiful. I think the design is elegant and it is very information dense and it does a good job of conveying things. But I don't look at the board and think, wow, that's a beautiful board. Really? With CO2, I definitely think that. Huh. I really think that with Venus and Lisboa. There's so many icons and lines and dividers and everything. I, but they're so beautifully presented. They're not beautifully presented. They're <laughs> efficiently presented. Well, that too. That's part of it. All right. Anyways, CO2 looks really good. Um, I don't have a whole lot more to say on it. I think it's an interesting concept, um, but I want to play it more. The next game he released was Kanban, a game about German auto engineering. Japanese auto making. It's Japanese? Pretty sure. Why did I think it was German this whole time? I don't know. What? No. It's Japanese? Pretty sure it's a Japanese auto factory. Well, now I'm going to look it up. Fun trivia fact. 
the uh there in kanban there's two game modes you can play easy either the easy version or the hard version and there's a a boss character in the game that kind of moves through the different departments inspecting them uh throughout the game and it's one of the timers and uh in the easy mode she will reward you if you have done enough work in a certain department and in the hard version she will punish you if you haven't met a certain standard in each department and the uh, the boss's name is Sandra, and Vital's wife is named Sandra, and so there was a whole like mini uproar or whatever when I think when he released Kanban, basically saying like, "Oh, <laughs> the you know mean Sandra, what what's all this about?" And I guess it's just a fun inside joke. And okay, it's I had just... no idea. Yeah, you're right; it is Japanese. Ah, uh-huh. why did I don't no Kan idea Kanban. Well, no, Kanban is just an organizational style. Yeah. Um, it says here at BGG, Kanban is the Japanese word for billboard, a term okay. for the visual clue, cues that might be used in a lean, efficient assembly line in order to expedite in smooth workflow. There you go. Huh. Weird. Okay, well, i got to relearn everything I know about this game. I've actually only played it once. You've played it at least twice, three times? I forget two or three times. So. Two or three times, I was I thought it was interesting but very difficult to understand in the first play. Although that's the case for nearly all Lacerda games that I've played. Uh, I know you seem to like it quite a bit, right? Yeah, I like it. I think it's fun. Um, I think for me, the most interesting tension in this game is is choosing your turn order essentially because you basically choose which there are one, two, three, four, four and a half departments you can go to. The last one is kind of a wild, um, a wild, but the, the first four departments, I hope I'm not missing one. You can go and they will operate in a certain turn order essentially. And at the end of the previous turn, you select your, your arrival time of when you're going to get to the factory and start working and you resolve them left to right. Um, and once someone's taken a spot, you can't, no one else can go in that spot. And there's two spots in each, in each zone or each section of the factory. Um, but you also, so you, you basically take your turn and lay your meeple down and you, everyone takes their turn. And then you go back through in the same order, you stand up and move your meeple to a new space. So trying to get to the action you want is this weird balance of you want to go immediately after it if someone else is there <laughs> or you want to go as early as possible so that you have first dibs at, at getting there. Um, and you tend to want to do the actions from right to left, but they execute from left to right. So there's this, this I don't know, I, that's the hardest part of the game to me to figure out how to how to play well is managing that turn order selection and uh, execution which i think is really the heart of the game the rest of it's just kind of collecting resources and converting them into points through a couple processes yeah the the turn order thing in terms of everything operating in kind of the reverse order that you want them to felt unnecessarily mean but again, it was only the first play. I imagine once I kind of got more into the rhythms of the game and understood how to manipulate around that, I would enjoy it more. Yeah. It's kind of a Spirit Island thing. I think it's a good game. 
Um, I don't know how to rate it because I basically like all of his games, but I, I wouldn't put it at the top, but I don't feel like I can put any of them at the bottom really. So I don't know. <laughs> I liked Kanban. It's a good game, I think. Um, I'm sure it'll look beautiful once it has its uh, deluxe reprinting in the next year Yeah, I mean, it's, two, it's a really good, it's, it's a good test case of, of how important the visual design of the games are because i found kanban to be very visually overwhelming on that play it doesn't i mean it doesn't look great to begin with in the version that's out now but you know it's probably communicating about the same or less information as something like venos but it's just so much easier to see that information in venos than it is in kanban like just i don't know what the difference is necessarily but the upgrade in the visual design and how it relates to how easy it is to process information is super interesting. And I applaud people who can do that very, very well. Like, you know, tool. Yeah. Like that's, that's a really important and, and interesting aspect of art in board games that doesn't necessarily get a lot of attention. Um, and I wish I knew how to talk about it better, but I'd, I mean, it's one of those things I know when I'm playing the game, but I couldn't necessarily point out what what is different about this game that's not in this game, except unless there's something super egregious, like, you know, the font's too small or something. And, oh, it's hard to read this from across the not table. Sherlock Holmes <laughs> detective. Or the font's just atrocious, <laughs> like in the Sherlock Holmes consulting detective. It's hard to see the subtle things, and, and I think Kanban versus, you know, one of the Inno tool. Lacerda Games is a really good uh, comparison to make. Yeah, I'm not much of a designer. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Not a visual designer at all. Then we get to the Galarus, which is the first one, I think, that kind of launched as an Eagle Griffin, you know, tool game. Yeah, none of the other ones did, from what I understand. And this is the game where I first heard about Vital Lacerda. I think it was probably on the board game subreddit or something, and people were like, it's a worker placement game, but you only have one worker, and it's beautiful and has all these cool mechanisms, and I kind of filed it in the back of my mind of like, oh, that sounds like an interesting game. Uh, and this was you know, quite a while ago, at least in my board gaming world. It was only like five years ago, I think, when it came out. But... Now that I played it, I think it's just delightful. It's it's not as intense. It's not as complex in terms of different factors that you have to think of when planning an action as the heavier ones like Venus or Lisboa. But I find it very refreshing and very relaxing uh, to play the gallerist. See, this game has gotten lower in my estimation every time I've played it. Like other games, generally, I like them more. Of of his games, mm. but this one, the more I play it, the less I like it relative to the others. Um, and I don't know if it's just I've played badly recently and haven't done well and have gotten myself stuck, or if I just if there's something about like the tempo of the one worker going around or the action distributions or like you know the not the distribution I like the the where different actions are on the board or hmm. I don't know what it is, but I. I don't like this game as much as the others. Interesting. I don't know. It would be... I know it would be my third. I think my rankings would be... Venus, Lisboa, Gallerist, 
CO2 Kanban escape plan mm. from top to bottom. And I think that, well, I don't know. It, it, again, it's it's so much of like, which one have I played most recently? And I've, been, I've played The Gallerist a few times in the last six months. And yeah, I, I find it more relaxing. It's There's a mechanical cycle to it of just buying and selling art that's kind of easy to get your head wrapped around. And that's one of the main ways that you get money. But it has all those little bonus things and little bonus actions that Lacerda is known for in the gallerist. Oftentimes it's not even necessarily an action. It's just like, Oh, I get to cause this thing to trigger. And it's like, Ooh, some more, some more influence or some more money uh, explodes onto your lap. Uh, It feels nicer than the other games in that way, in that you're generally being given something uh, rather than it's like, I mean, if you get a bonus action, you are being given something, but it can feel like, oh, wow, another complicated decision to make. In the gallerist, it's like, ooh, influence scores, so I get some influence. Mm-hmm. Um, so in that sense, it may be just a matter of like kind of the lighter palette and the art style. Uh, it feels a lot friendlier than his other games. Maybe not a lot friendlier, but it, it feels friendlier. And I love the look of it. I love the extraneous little easels for the art that is completely unnecessary uh, but you hold up little easels for an art off to the side that's used for a relatively minor part of the game <laughs> yeah it's not even that important the um, end game masterpiece auction yeah <laughs> when <laughs> you take your turn draft. there are four four places you can go with your worker each of those places has two different options so really eight different things you're thinking of but it's relatively straightforward there's usually, again, only a couple that are actually viable to you based on the situation. The only time you can really get stuck is if you don't buy a piece of art fairly early on. And then you find yourself without enough money to buy a piece of art. But, like, as soon as you buy a piece of art, it increases in value immediately upon purchase. You can never lose out on a sale of art. You're always making some kind of profit. And then it can, because of that kind of gentleness to the game, you can really focus on you're trying to be competitive uh action efficiency and not allowing your opponents to get extra actions at key times through the system where you kind of bump someone off a space and then they get to take a bonus action um things like that so i I found it easier to dive into the strategy and get past kind of the rules and initial strategy barrier with the gallerist and then, then with the other games this game has a huge setup and rules teach it's it's so weird it's it takes so long i mean and once you're playing it it's not that complicated once you know what you're doing it's it can be a fairly but quick the game. setup and teach is extreme i think it's about the same as his other games you think it's more so than his other games i haven't tried to teach lisboa um co2 might be a bit might be an easier teach I don't know. I've taught Gallerst a couple times and it felt like I was going on and on and on and on about all these different bits of the game. Yeah. Um, I mean, all of his games have that initial complexity. I think this game, compared to the others we've talked about, there are more things, more triggered effects than, more triggered effects in Gallerist than anything before it at this point. Because that might be true. You yeah. move somewhere and you take an action, 
but then you also take a side action and many of the actions will cause one or two effects so you might go somewhere and buy a tile but then that puts that tile down in your board so you also have to send a meeple back to the, the lobby and you get that bonus which then triggers your extra resources based on how many meeples you have in your thing and that's like one of the easier actions um, yeah and i think there's just a lot of that and trying to explain all of that i've found very tedious yeah but once you're playing it like once someone gets four or five rounds into the game they're like oh i get it yeah that's something i remember last time i taught it where i had to be like okay this game's gonna seem very complicated but once once we start playing it, it's actually not too bad at all and everyone's like oh yeah it isn't that bad it's you're right it's just a lot of stuff at the beginning it's a good thing it has those player aids which are very nice yeah uh, the player help aids a help bit. a lot i don't know i just i've had a few turns where i feel like yes i'm being efficient and i'm doing things and then i just have a lot of turns where i'm like well the only thing i can do is go over there and get like half an action basically mm. and it's just it's been a lot of feels bad turns i don't know I just don't like this one as much. Yeah, this this one's certainly, I think, going to be our biggest disagreement. Uh, I I really enjoyed the gallerist, especially I think, if I, think, I don't have okay. to teach it. I think you can really get stuck in the gallerist a lot more than you're saying. I don't... Because I, I, you need, like, four different things to all kind of come together, I think, to play to really play well. Like, you're never going to be just out of the game in that you can't do anything. But I, mean, I think it's very... Unless you don't buy a piece of art before you spend your money like yes. I did and buy first game. Yes. But... As long as you buy a piece of art, yeah. you will be in the game and able to play. But I'm saying to have good turns, you need to have like four things converge. And if any one of those gets too far behind, you end up stuck with just these really slow, inefficient turns. And you can just lose. I don't know if I've experienced that... I mean, there are certainly situations I've been in where I've really the only viable thing was like to go sell a piece of art that I didn't necessarily want to sell at that time. I suppose I can see a bit of what you're saying. But it's not that it's not that hard to get into a situation where you're like, oh, I need I don't have any assistance that I can do anything with. I don't have money to buy assistance. I don't have enough people in my gallery to generate money so I can go take a contract and buy one assistant with it or something. Or I don't have the contract to sell the right piece of art, so I can't even generate that money back. I don't know. I just, I think there's a lot of traps like that. And you can just, you can get stuck without anything good to do. Not that you can't do anything. Not that you're eliminated from the game. Sure. But I think it's, it's quite difficult to play well. And it's very easy to just get stuck not being able to do anything efficient. Yeah, I suppose I can see that. It hasn't happened to me yet, except for the first time I played, right? Fundamentally misunderstood the game. But that was really stuck. That wasn't like a bad action. It was like a bad first two-thirds of the game. (laughs) Maybe it's a matter of... Well, I don't know. The Gallerist is also one of... I'm thinking of the kind of the end game trigger is is the gallery the first one where the players kind of collectively determine the end game venos is a set number of actions was co2 a set number 
Uh, yes. Yeah, there's you play five decades or whatever. And then Kanban is Kanban mostly. Mostly, okay. Um, the there's two endgame triggers in Kanban, and you need both of them to hit. That's right. Because you have the Sandra causes the the end of week review basically, Mm -hmm. and you need and that's one side, and then there's also the meetings which happen every time you buy a certain number of cars off of the test track. So that's where the players kind of collectively decide how fast they're pushing that part of the game. And you need five total meetings or end-of-week reviews to trigger the game. So three of one and two of the other. Yeah. The gallerist, it's... there's. I mean, you could theoretically go around, not forever, but, I mean, inevitably someone would have to do something. But if the players agreed, you can make that game very, very long in terms of the number of turns... Although yeah. the things that cause the end of the game tend to be things that occur by doing things you'd want to do to help, yeah, you know, you'd have to really, anyway. you'd have to really distort your strategy to extend the game. Yeah, but I wonder if that creates an added pressure of feeling like you really need your actions. It also ramps up a lot, like. The end of the game in the gallerist always surprises me, or at least when I see it coming, it's like, oh wow. I may have two turns. Yeah. It, and it's ex- like, oh, I had so much it, I wanted to well, do. Well, okay. So it doesn't, you don't really get more capabilities at the end of the game, mm-hmm. but it does accelerate very quickly because you start doing things and you kind of, well, there, well there's, there's a, there's a thing with the gallerist with the, the, the amount of money you have and like the first I'd say over half of the game, you're really trying to do things and like spend money as soon as you make it to be efficient. And then at some point you start having money and then it's like, oh, wow, the game's about to be over. Right. Because the, the end game triggers are the, all the meeples are gone, which is which happens from buying, buying art, art and from placing meeples in the center. Mm-hmm. There's actions that do that. Uh, all the tickets are gone. and Which just happens for a bunch of reasons right because you just kind of get tickets as a side effect of a bunch of things um and the two masterpieces right or master artists or whatever which is something that you get a bonus by creating so yeah it's something you generally want to do to create value and if if you are the one that triggers someone to tick over the threshold to becoming a master then you get an extra uh five bucks or whatever yeah um and it can tie into end game bonuses I wonder if so that, that, that kind of accelerating pace creates an added feeling of pressure. I guess the the reason where it accelerates is as you get more meeples inside your gallery, you cause more things to happen. Like yeah. influence ramps faster, you get more money in influence, or not not influence, uh, fame ramps faster because you it's usually like one plus the number of uh, white meeples in your gallery. So as you collect more of those, mm-hmm. um, you can bump an artist four or five times instead of, you know, once. Right. So that can trigger that masterpiece. And um, you also generate more money. So you have money to spend on art. So you buy more art, which triggers the end. I don't know. It it does accelerate basically with how many meeples in your gallery, I think. That makes sense. Yeah. Um, which causes the end of the game to kind of creep up on you. Yeah. And then it becomes a mad rush for scoring as many objectives as you can, usually. Yeah. Um, although they're always there. They're always there. You have, you have to have people in your lobby 
to and have some sold art to to uh, unlock them for yourself. So they're not necessarily there from the very beginning of the game, but I always feel like I hit the end game scoring stuff too late when I should be trying to pick off ones I think that'll be super lucrative towards the middle game. Yeah, it's a lot of interesting stuff like that because especially if you're doing that kind of thing, you're going to places where you're typically not giving other people bonus actions. So you kind of want to get off kilter of the other people's action loops, uh, which is an interesting part of the game. Anyways, I find the gallerist very interesting. Uh, I'll have to find non-Orion people to play with. I know there are other people in our group who really like it. So Yeah. Yeah. Next on the list is Lisboa. The best one. It, it probably is. I, I fell in love last time I played, but it's been quite a few months since I have played. We've got to play this one again. It's this really, is really, really like good. the one we didn't play over the couple of Saturday days, right? Didn't we play like yeah. four other of his games? Well, I wanted to play one. the ones I hadn't played, so I yeah. wanted to play CO2 and Escape Plan, yeah. and then we ended up playing Venus a few times. Yeah. Uh, but did not hit Lisboa. Lisboa's um, awesome. Yeah, Lisboa, it's a, it's a very simple game. You just play a card. Yep. <laughs> That's it. All you do, you just play a card and you put it in two places. You either tuck it or you put it up in the court. That's and it. Then an explosion of things happens. <laughs> and then like exponentially increasing numbers of effects happen. <laughs> it's like triggering a, a domino run. Yeah. It's like, well, I'm just going to play this and then I get to do this and this and this. And there's the rubble thing, which is super fun. I love the the rubble, the whole I really like, the city thing. I really like the rubble. I don't know. I really like this game. Um, there's so many things you're doing. You've got the ships thing going on and you're shipping goods and you're like passive aggressively shipping things on other people's ships, right? Mm-hmm. And then you've you've got the rubble where you're clearing out the city and it's really expensive at the start and then it accelerates because you both have more money and it's cheaper. So you start playing more stores and the government buildings and then you're beseeching the court to get whatever the major actions you can get from there and deciding whether or not you're going to like upgrade your ships and which cards you're going to keep and whether you want to tuck something at the top or the bottom for which bonus effect you want from it. I forgot it. about that, yeah. Um, not only do you decide whether or not to play it or tuck it, you have, there's two different places you could tuck it for different reasons. Yeah. it's. I think it's such a good game. And uh, really, this speaks to like the type of game I like, which is you know, very heavy strategy games with a lot of implications, which is what this is. Yeah, um, I, I think yeah. certainly the heaviest of his games, they're all fairly heavy, but I think this one stands out a little bit. This one bit. stands out as like a half step up, I think. Yeah, over. I'd say this one in Venus would be a little bit below it. And then, well, maybe Kanban. This one, Venus and Kanban are probably the three most complex. The other ones feel a bit easier. Yeah, I'd probably say this one then... Then Venus, maybe then Kanban, then Galaris, then Escape Plan. I miss CO2. CO2 is somewhere Escape in the middle. Plan. Escape Plan is probably the simplest. Yeah, that sounds about right. But I think this is probably his most thematic game. This one in CO2 would be his most CO2 thematic game. CO2 is super games. thematic. I enjoyed that a lot. Yeah, I, I just don't have as much knowledge. Like it's super thematic to, thematic to the idea that he's trying to put across. I just don't know how much that relates to actual decision-making in terms of, you know, UN delegations of 
environmental science or whatever. Um, I just don't have the knowledge to know if it's more of like, oh, this is kind of how these different players interact with the world energy infrastructure, or if it's just kind of a construct to get some ideas out about why there's an increase of, of uh, greenhouse gases in the world, the kind of perverse incentives. But Lisboa, about the rebuilding of the city of Lisboa, after it got hit with like an earthquake and a fire and a hurricane or something, I don't remember. It was, it was a massive act of God. Uh, I think they, they had in the insurance. I game. think they had both an earthquake and a fire or something. Um, Did I throw the hurricane in there as as extra garnish? Maybe. Then I, I think it was. I was just trying to think yeah. of what could happen. I'm like, yeah, it's kind of by the ocean. Hurricane. <laughs> yeah. No, they, they got hit by at least a double pronged uh, disaster, and really. Yes. Um, the city took a hit. <laughs> yeah, and also one of the major uh, warehouse shipments of the game Lisboa was caught on fire. So yep. extra theme. Yep. Uh, over in Europe somewhere. Uh, Not in Lisboa though. No, that would have been that would have been the cherry on top. But alas. Anyways, I think this is potentially is most thematic because it's about rebuilding the city of Lisboa. The players kind of are like entrepreneurs or or merchants or businessmen assisting in the rebuilding of the city by appealing to the governing bodies uh, who are trying to help rebuild the city. And it really does feel like you're kind of working together to do something to accomplish a goal, but all coming you're doing at it from your own like oh i want to come out on top here once the city's rebuilt you're doing you're all contributing towards the same kind of meta goal or larger goal right but you're really trying to do it the best and extract the most money in and the, the most prestige and, and prestige have the most clout among yeah. those yeah. you know the the government and, and the you church don't, and it, you and don't really need the other players to do it they do kind of you you collectively reduce the cost of things, and I guess you do need other people's ships, but it's it's that very yeah. passive aggressive sort of interaction that fits really well with businesses competing with each other, especially for government resources. <laughs> especially when there's yeah, it, when part of the game is about rent seeking uh, of governmental or church resources or something like that. So you know, like you're trying to clear rubble and you know, rebuild the, the merchant center of the city, but you want to get the best spots for you yeah. uh, and snipe, you know, plans or whatever for, for different areas of the cities. And get your people into the government, like yeah. your family into the government. <laughs> and like you want the economic conditions to improve, but you also want to do things that are very lucrative that cause, that happen to cause the economic conditions to go down. <laughs> Right. Like there's lots of little interactions like that that are just so thematic mm-hmm. and so exciting to to see. Uh and and I just love it. It's such a fun game. Yeah. Lisboa well, is awesome. Different mark if you're out there, we should play it again. He has he has commented on the YouTube uh on on the live stream. Uh his last comment was literally we need to play Lisboa again. <laughs> Yes, we do. Uh, we should make that happen before we move out of this apartment. We should make that happen in the next two weeks. Yes. <laughs> uh, so hopefully he's still there and we can make this happen. Although I'll be gone for a few days. Anyways, we will 
make Lisboa happen again. Beautiful game. And finally, we get to Escape Plan, which is the newest of his releases and I think clearly my least favorite. I've only played it once, but I was not particularly enthused about it. I think it's not a bad game. I just thought it was kind of... It felt a bit basic and simplistic for Lacerda and not in like an elegant way, just in a way of like he felt like he needed to make a simpler game perhaps and then it just came out a bit blander than his other games. I had fun, but I will certainly agree that it is both simpler and not as compelling as uh, any of his other games. Yeah, I mean, it's... I probably wouldn't be so harsh on it if it was from a different designer. But when you look at the entire resume of his work, it's like, wow, yeah, this was kind of a misstep. You know, it's like if there's a particular film director you really love and they make a movie that's, you know, not on quite on the level of their other movies, you tend to be like, wow, that was kind of disappointing. Whereas if someone else, you know, someone you never heard of had directed it, you might have been like, oh, that was pretty good. Escape plan. Right. The big okay. thing okay. So with it, escape it, plan. It's more like if one of your favorite directors that makes these super, I don't know the right even language to use to describe films, but these masterpieces of film, like okay. some, Let you, me put you're, it, you're no country for old men, or sure. things like that that are in your top five, ten of all time. And then they make like a cheesy action flick. Yeah. And you're like, hey, I had fun watching that. But it was clearly not as good as the other things. Yeah. So for the Coen Brothers fans out there, this is Escape Plan is the intolerable cruelty of Lacerda's oeuvre. <laughs> the Hail Caesar? <laughs> I think Hail Caesar is actually really good. Okay. I liked Hail Caesar. I thought oh, it, I did too. I thought it was and very goofy. But. I, think, I think history will look kinder on Hail Caesar than the initial release where it got fairly mediocre reviews. Okay. Good to mediocre, but the big thing about Escape Plan is that I a mean, big, a key part of Lacerda's games is that like, there are so many different factors you have to think of, both short term and long term, and the implications of your actions are very far reaching and something that you can kind of dwell on a long time. Escape Plan didn't seem to have that nearly as much. Anything you did, there were factors that you had to think about that they were fairly straightforward. And there was enough randomness, especially with the map and such, that you couldn't think super long-term. You could have general strategies, but you had to improvise. But your improvisations weren't necessarily that interesting. I think you also said that it felt like every everything you could do gave you about the same reward. So it essentially became hitting as many payoff spots uh, as you could and it yes. didn't really matter what they were it just if you hit seven and I hit five you won yes and he tries to get around that by having you know each category of payoff of getting money which is your victory points in the game having different values and some of them are even different for different people you have a little hidden uh, score sheet that you're handed out that shows the different values of different things but the fact is if you're going for two out of the three categories, you could fairly easily hit every spot of two of those three categories. So they end up averaging out to the same value if you're hitting all the spots. And I felt like I lost simply because I had one or two turns where I wasn't able to afford to hit a payout zone and had to do an intermediary step. And that was kind of what the game boiled down to. I thought the last turn was fascinating. Well, I didn't win because I 
didn't have enough money to escape, which is kind of a clever part of the game. But I wouldn't have won had I escaped because of that. Yeah. And that felt a little bit out of my control, given the randomness in the map creation and how the police move. Or not necessarily randomness, the unpredictability, because other players are going to be influencing that a lot. Yeah. And I have no problem with unpredictability and randomness when it's executed well. This just felt like too reductive and tight of a system of like, I need to execute a scoring maneuver on, I don't know, eight of my 10 actions in order to be competitive. And then something could pop up that you couldn't have foreseen. It's like, well, I can't do that now. There wasn't enough nuance to hide that. So I was very evil very easily able to reduce the game to those factors. And then at that point, it's like, yeah, I didn't have as much fun as I thought I would. I enjoyed being a thief and running around the city and trying to collect my stash and sick the the police on other people. I don't know. And the theme theme didn't grab me that much. It didn't feel like I was a thief running around. I felt some of it was contrived of like the, oh, you invested in local businesses. I will say, (laughs) yeah. (laughs) It was a lot of, yeah, contrived is a good word. I will say the notoriety thing was probably the best part of the game. That was a really cool system. I thought the the notoriety kind of pushed your luck. What's that? It's not quite push your luck, but... No. um, It's it's a track that has both pros and cons, and those are hard to calculate. Yeah. And that was the one aspect of the game that didn't feel like I could reduce it to like, well, if this happens, I get a positive result. Otherwise, I get a negative result. It was really, oh, wow, based on these situations, my dynamics could change a lot depending on my notoriety, both, I believe, in total and relative to other players. Yeah. Yeah. Because... Depending on different things. Depending on how generally all the police move towards the most infamous player and that's done well that that is what happens they they move towards the most infamous player but their movement is controlled by every other player below that person on the infamy chart mm-hmm. and each person gets to move one police and there are rules of it has to move closer and you can't have two of the same type of police on the same hex right and then as you hit different tiers of notoriety different things unlock where you can potentially have bigger payouts yeah, so kind of like in Kanban where you have this keys system where you unlock additional spots on different tracks by hitting many achievements inside the game. Going up the infamy track unlocks several of those. Um, you have like an inventory and uh, contacts or something. And you unlock those, which then those tiles go over to the other side of the, your board, which gives you a bonus action later, but you have to pay for it. And that's where you get some of the Lacerda kind of follow action stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's a obvious benefit and it accelerates kind of your capabilities, but it also makes it much harder or it potentially much harder to move around. And you're penalized heavily on your final score by remaining at high infamy. So you, so right. if you either want to probably kind of stay at low to mid infamy or you want to go all the way up and get all the way back down, but yeah. that's a hard thing to do. Yeah. I think clearly that's the best aspect of the game. I think the end of game thing is cool. Yeah. I know there's, that's been kind of the most controversial part of the game is that you have to have a certain amount of cash on hand to exit the city mm-hmm. and that amount changes based on in what order 
you exit. So if you're the last person to exit the city, you got to pay a lot more. Yeah. I th- believe the first person gets out for free. Um, so in our game, we was a four-player game, and only two people actually exited, I think. I thought it was a five-player game, and three people exited. That might be it. But um, yeah. It was nearly half. Um, but it, it's a very simple push-your-luck thing, and I think it's hard to say that it's unfair when it's there from the beginning of the game and it's part of the calculation. Like if you don't, if you're, I deliberately took a risk and and waited one more turn because I thought I, and I did, I needed to do, to get closer to, to being in contention. Uh, but I ended up being like $2 short, uh, at the end, but that doesn't feel bad to me. I guess it's kind of a, it's kind of a taboo thing of like player elimination, but it's the literally the end of the game. So it's not like people are, have to walk away and do something else if they get eliminated. Yeah. Uh, and it's just a cool little push your luck aspect in that. That's typically yeah. a, a fun aspect of a game. Yeah. Add a little push your luck. I enjoyed collecting the items and the differences they let you kind of how you, the, the, the more flexibility in constructing your routes that those gave you but they weren't that insane or they, they weren't that novel or um mm-hmm. nuanced or anything it was i liked kind of putting those together and trying to find the right way of using them um, yeah it is by far the most colorful of his games i will say that that's a some vibrant colors in that one it is very colorful yeah it's it's certainly a step down in complexity um and probably not as elegant or probably step down in elegance as well. Um, so for those reasons, I would rate it lower. I think Would it's, you put it at the bottom or would you put the gallerist? I'd have to play it again because I had fun the first time, but I kind of suspect it's the sort of game that will lose that novelty um, fun mm-hmm. after the first play. In my mind's eye, the last play of Escape Plan was more fun than the last play of the gallerist. Yeah. But I suspect pretty well i'm pretty confident that there's more to the gallerist and that it has will remain more interesting whereas escape plan i think will be something that's kind of fun but not have staying power yeah i i completely agree although i love the gallerist but i i agree that escape plan doesn't seem to have the staying power it might turn into a game where it's very much about knowing the map tiles and manipulating turn order, that kind of tight player-to-player there interaction. There could be nuance, nuance there, and it might start to get closer. In in it might matter hitting like your hundred-dollar location um, as opposed to your seventy-dollar location if people get more efficient. But even but maybe then, not. I don't see it as being as exciting as like Lisboa or Venus. Like those games are just no, but yeah, no, no, no. So I, I, I think cool well, those complex. steps are just a, a step more in complexity, or a yeah. couple steps more in complexity, and the sorts of synergies you're trying to find and create. Um, I think in terms of looking at escape plan against itself and against projected future plays, I think that's where the potential competition or tightness or interestingness of the game could come in. Is yes, if those. If the margins get razor thin and it comes down to, you know, $20,000 at the end of the game. No, I completely agree. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Those are the six Lacerda games that are out right now. He has a short game that he designed with his son, I believe. Dragon Keepers, I think, coming out at some point. And then On Mars, his Martian 
uh, I don't know if it's exploration. I think it's building up. Like is it colonization or is it terraforming? I think it's colonization. Okay. I could be entirely wrong. Uh, coming out, I think both of those are coming out later this year or maybe early in 2020, and I will be excited to play both of them. Before we get to the end, Speaking though, of Mars oh, colonization, yeah. I fairly recently read a book called Red Mars, which is by Kim Stanley Robinson from actually like 30 years ago or 20, 25, 30 years ago or something. Um, and I really rec- enjoyed it. I recommend it. Um, I will say it's not a book with a strong plot of like this narrative unfolding and the, some mystery you have to solve. It's just kind of things happen as they build up the colony on Mars and oh, cool. the political situation changes and you kind of jump forward 10 years and see the characters as they, um, and you, you kind of jump POVs as well. I feel um, like that's kind of old school sci-fi style anyways. Like, yeah plot takes a downside to like really cool sciencey stuff and it's just and like interesting just concepts. things happen yeah, and yeah. it's just people doing things on mars and the ideas they talk about are really cool and interesting um and it, and it's fun to see kind of his perception of what colonization on Mar- mars will look like from 30 years ago um, which is something we're now talking a lot more about yeah. um but anyways as a somewhat of an aside i, I recommend it i have the next I think it's a, it's a trilogy. There's like Red Mars, then Green Mars, then Blue Mars. Okay. Um, and I think I have the next one or two on audiobook. Um, I might have to read so. that. So I do have a, not necessarily Mars, but an, uh, a colonization style game idea in mind. Yeah. That was kind of one of my first game design concepts. Yeah. Uh, so I recommend it. Just know what Although you're Mars is like saturated now. It's board gaming. It's There's terraforming Mars, yeah. which is a huge hit. The Portal Games one, First Martians. There's a couple others that were smaller, and then now uh, Lacerda's. There's take several on video it. game ones too. Um, there's like two or three colony colonized Mars. Oh, really? Video games, I think. Huh. Yeah. Just kind of a confluence there. Paradox has one for called Surviving Mars or something. Is that new? Uh, within the last few years okay i think there's the um the economy one off-world trading company is that mars or is that generic i think it's kind of generic but sure. it's, i think it's i think it's kind of mars but it's fairly generic yeah um and i think there's another mars one too that i read about um all kind of in the same vein of exploration colonization survival mashups yeah I don't think mine would be Mars necessarily because mine is based on the idea that we're going to this planet to harvest some like singular resource. Mm-hmm. So my initial idea was um, borrowing from a silly case back in my debate days, uh, helium-3 mm-hmm. from the moon. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you can get... I think, I think the idea is that if we could make good fusion reactors it would use helium-3 most likely okay um so that's kind of and there's a whole bunch just like in the soil on the moon i read an article today about this perspective technology they're kind of talking about of launching something toward alpha centauri and basically um it's kind of like the um like the orion project but not with nukes and uh, actually it's like I don't want to spoil, but like the the brain thing from whatever the, the that, De- uh, death's end death's end. Or, um, so 
Death Send or the second? That's Death Send, yeah. But the, the, the idea is to basically have this high-powered laser and kind of propel it with this laser and it's this like one gram little payload or something and to shoot it out at 20% of the speed of light so it'll take what 20 years instead of 100 years or something to get there just to put just to watch something just to see what happens well no the idea is that they're kind of waiting for miniaturization of computers to get small enough that that payload could actually be meaningful Um, and they're just trying to figure out how to propel that size payload out uh without meaningful in terms of like transmitting information back or meaningful in terms of meaningful in the if sense there's an that, alien species no, out meaningful there in can... the sense that you could pack enough computer technology in that size to be worth sending i oh, guess that's really cool um, because obviously <laughs> the um <laughs> the nuclear bomb stepladder plan is probably not happening <laughs> as much as i enjoy <laughs> the fact <laughs> existing <laughs> Also, it's the Orion Project, which, you know, hey. Hey, there you go. I got a crazy space plan named after me. Yeah, I don't think they'll ever name one Project Mark. (laughs) (laughs) Mark with a C. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, man. Anyways, uh, we talked about the games. I wanted to cover a couple of design consistencies that I see with Lacerda. And this is, we had some good ones with Vlada. I think it's kind of easier to see Lacerda's design consistencies because so far all of his games feel somewhat similar. Like you can look at one and be like, oh yeah, that's a Lacerda game uh, just from the way it is. Like, like you would do with a Feld game. The sorts of mechanisms that he uses are pretty, are common. Yeah. Uh, Uh, But they're common across his games. Yeah. There were four that I was able to kind of tease out into categories. The first is interlocking loops um, or mechanical loops in the games. I think Lisboa, the economic, like the state of the economy tracker is a good idea with this because that kind of has its claws in a lot of aspects of the game, which makes the game hard to explain because almost everything is dependent on understanding something else that you haven't yet explained and vice versa. Uh, But it creates a lot of interesting interactions where you, you nudge one thing. Like we talked about the dominoes before you nudge one thing and it has implications in like three other aspects of the game. Um, And I think he does that across the board with pretty much all of his games more so than other designers there's always some level of interconnectedness in game design especially heavier euro games but i think it's very prominent in lacerda games yeah there's a lot of you need money to get influence and you need influence to get people and you need people to get money (laughs) right Um, yeah yeah like the, the cycle that you do to get influence is kind of over here on the right on one one side and the cycle to get money is over here but they depend on each other and then you also need this third thing um so it 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 creates fun situations of and fun puzzles of i need a to do b to do c to do a (laughs) yeah and it's all over the place in lacerda's designs i mean you look at like the gallerist right so you buy a piece of art um, you then need to get a contract to sell that piece of art, which is the same location as the place where you actually sell it. So you have to do some kind of action in the middle unless you get bumped off of that spot. Uh, but before you sell, you want to increase the, uh, the, the value of 
that artist's work, which means you go to a different place, which costs a certain amount of resources, uh, which you may not have until you sell the piece of art. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so there's a lot of, it creates this kind of tight rope feeling where you're trying to balance out all these different factors before you finally get a payoff from it. Uh, same thing in Venus, right? You have very little money to do anything and you want to build up these vineyards in order to sell your wine to get money. But of course you have to go to the bank to actually get the money from that, or you can divest, but you take long-term losses that you can kind of resolve by going to the bank. So the bank is kind of this intermediary aspect that's everything's funneling through, but then you're limited on money and actions. And, and the bank is down in one corner. <laughs> and it's in a corner. So you have to, to go from like the bank to like an upgrade or buy, you know, if you, if you cash out at the bank, you're like, Oh, I have money now. All the things that you really want to do to spend that money cost an additional money to jump across, uh, to hit that side of the action board. Yeah. Lots of things like that, like that, that might be the, the, the fundamental staple of, of his, of his designs. The second thing I thought of is endgame scoring available from the start. Uh, this is true, not necessarily from the very beginning, but usually something you can access very early on. Venus, you can do it once you get, once you apply for the wine fair, which you could potentially do as like your second action. Um, you can get a barrel up at that top row. If you wanted to, you could move it over and claim an endgame scoring point. Um, with the gallerist, you could do that on your, f no, you have to sell a piece of art first. So after a couple of actions and then Lisboa, uh, that's one of the things you can do is grab an end of game, uh, scoring card from very early on in the game. Oh yeah, that's right. I yeah. forgot how many uh -huh. extra modules there are. In that game. Kanban. I don't think there's something like that, nor with CO2, but those three, Kanban is basically you just kind of accumulate points throughout the Kanban's game. Kanban's more of a point salad than any of yeah, his other games. Yeah, it's more of that. You get points incrementally. Um, there's kind of these checkpoints. There's there's, there's kind of like mid-game scoring checkpoints where you kind of leverage the, the things you've done and the uh, seats that you've gained to cash out objectives, which change throughout the game on each meeting. But otherwise, it's mostly just doing actions that give you points. Yeah. Or doing actions to let you do other actions that give you points. Yeah, this is something that might be more uniquely his. I don't see it a lot in that he really displays endgame scoring bonuses right there in front of you. And it's not like, oh, this is how the game will be scored. It's if you want to, you could snag the ones you want really early on and then build toward that and know that no one's going to block you from this bonus that's individually yours. Um, but you're giving that up something feels, else. So. But you're losing tempo on your build-up or your engine or whatever. Yeah. That very much feels like a Lacerda thing that that I think is, more than any of the things I'm listing here, something I don't see in other games. Where typically, you know, there's a lot of Euro games that will have, like, you know, different cards that come out later in the game that are like, oh, now we're getting points for things. Mm. Or different tiles or something. Uh, Through the Ages has a bit of this where it has the action card that gives you points and it's more lucrative early in the game. That's a little subtle, clever thing that's kind of Lacerda-ish, but way simplified um, compared to, you know, the Gallerist or something. I think that's the one thing that really stands out to me of his games. 
The third thing is that players semi-control the game pace. We talked about this a bit. Uh, most Not as much in the first three, but more so in the more recent three. Yes, definitely more so in the, more, more, the three most recent ones. Not at all in Venus, but it kind of becomes a thing that he is more interested in it is the end of a game triggers mm-hmm. that you see kind of develop into escape plan where it becomes a major, not selling point, but something that stands out about that game that's a like, feature. okay, this yeah. is something unique and interesting and different. Yeah. Kind of a, a, a bold statement there. And then finally, uh, the thing that everyone talks about, bonus actions. That's... Lacerda thing you do something simple and then it becomes very complex and it's like wow I thought I was making one decision here not six yeah uh, and that's kind of and, how and, he and formulates his games and it's both multiple consequences of doing a main thing and it's also on other people's turns getting actions for following them on yes. doing a, like a weaker version of what they did by being in the right place at the right time it's also explicit and implicit so it might be, oh, I can do this and I spend a, a wine to get this bonus action, which gives me something else. Or maybe I spend the wine first to get the bonus action to unlock this, uh, you know, give me enough money to do this other action that I wanted to do. And that's really fun decision making. It's also like implicit in that it ties into how you make the decisions in the first place. Because it's like, oh, if I take this action I'm thinking particularly of the gallerist here. If I take this action now, it'll be a pretty good action and it'll have decent results. But if I go do this other thing, it will cause, it'll mean that the trigger that happens on the action I really want to do becomes more lucrative. So maybe I can get, you know, some tickets to pull some people into my gallery that will get me more influence, which will push me over a threshold so that if I get bumped on this other action, I can do two of the main actions. Mm -hmm. uh, It's, you know, at a relatively low cost. There's all that like, yeah. In in Gallerist and Lisboa, implications of things kind of spiral out. In in the Gallerist and Lisboa, especially, a lot of the game is setting yourself up to take efficient following actions. Yeah. Because um, in Lisboa, you can you can take an action that basically gives you another action later. <laughs> Kanban, you can bank actions, but there's no player interaction. It's just certain things will let you bank shifts so that you can spend them later there's some Um, interesting dynamics with what bonus you take based on the turn order thing which can unlock different potentials later on yeah um but gallerist you want to set yourself up so that you're at certain points relative to the thresholds so that and then go to places that other people will bump you so you want to get bumped in that game because it gives you extra actions but you also want to have things to do with those extractions so you have to mm-hmm. set yourself up to have things that you want to do and also be in a place that people will bump you yeah lisboa you want to set yourself up to want to do some of the same things as other people without letting it be too inefficient <laughs> because maybe they see oh you want to follow me on green so i'm going to put four of my people in green so that you can't afford to do that action right or you also have to calculate that like well, yes, I will get an extra bonus action, but if they if there's only one space that I want to take and they take it, suddenly I'm kind of out in the cold with just this wasted this wasted setup. So yeah, it's those kinds of decisions that make Lacerda games so compelling. Those multifaceted, short versus long term, straightforward versus 
uh, risk-taking decision points that you encounter throughout his games that I think make them so compelling and so interesting and makes him one of the most exciting game designers right now. I mean, for sure. I can't wait to see what's going on with On Mars. Like, it's a cool theme, so I am hoping he does something really neat with it. And I trust that he will. Even though, you know, Escape Plan, I think, is the weakest of his games, I'm not worried that he's going to kind of falter off. I mean, the one right before Lisboa is probably the best of his games. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, So it's one of the very few of the designers where... If I hear that a game of his is coming out, I'm very, I want to play it as soon as possible. I can't really say that for a lot of designers. Yes, kind of the circle of trust is like, you know, him. Vlada. Vlada, although Vlada's been doing a bunch of lighter things recently. He's working on a Euro He's working on a big one. Like Uwe, maybe? I would be interested in whatever Uwe does, but not super excited. Who am I thinking of? I'm gonna make sure I get coin games. Although that's not a single, it's kind of Volco, but it's not really. Well, I mean, anything Volco does. uh, Okay, what 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 else have has he done? Volco. He did Labyrinth. He did Labyrinth, right? He's always involved in coin, but it seems like he's. I think it's been mostly coin recently. Yeah. Before that, Labyrinth. Before that, couple other games I haven't played yet. Okay. But I, I, but he has a very interesting perspective on on game design that I find I I would find interesting. Mm Hmm. Honestly, the only the only designers I'm really itching to see what they're to play their whatever comes out is Lacerda, Vlada, and probably Volko. So yeah. I guess that's all the V's. The V's, yeah. Vital, Vlada, and Volko. Yeah. Maybe you just like V named designers. Maybe that's it. Maybe that's the lesson from today. If your first name starts with a V, you make good games. That that isn't uh that's not a good portent for my own game designs. maybe you need a pen name yes i'll have to come up with uh, i'll be victor something i don't know victor gamenstein there you go (laughs) no that's terrible that's awful (laughs) (laughs) oh gosh okay i think i need to end this podcast thanks for listening everybody uh don't forget to check out the thoughtfulgamer.com i'm on social media twitter and facebook and if you like to support the podcast, go to patreon.com slash the thoughtful gamer. Uh, and don't forget to rate and review the podcast on iTunes or wherever you get podcasts from. Thanks for listening, everybody. Goodbye. <laughs>